If you're uh, new with us, uh, we've been going uh, through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse for over a year now, and uh, we anticipate, uh, anticipate finishing uh, the week after Easter, and uh, today uh, we are fittingly uh, in this text in verse 44 of chapter 23 as we read about the death and then eventually the burial of Jesus. I often think about the, the old spiritual when I think about Good Friday. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when they laid him in the, in the tomb? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Well, I want us to go there today. We often recite the Apostles' Creed around here, and in the Creed we, we say, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And we're looking at that latter part uh, this afternoon. Let's pray before we have a look at this text. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for all that we've learned in this gospel over this past year or so. We thank you for this moment that we have to consider the final moments of Jesus before he was uh, eventually resurrected. And we pray that you would minister to our hearts as we look at this text. Open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from it. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Etta Linneman was a German New Testament scholar who would have been labeled today as an extreme liberal or a radical New Testament scholar. That is to say, she didn't take any of the statements in the Gospels seriously. She was a part of what was called German higher criticism at the time. But then something happened to her. She got converted. And that changes everyone, including unbelieving New Testament scholars. Before then, she was, by her own admission, very bitter and enslaved to various vices. But then the Lord saved her. And she would later write the following. At that point, God led me to vibrant Christians who knew Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. I heard their testimonies as they reported what God had done in their lives. Finally, God himself spoke to my heart by means of a Christian brother's words. By God's grace and love, I entrusted my life to Jesus. He immediately took my life into his saving grasp and began to transform it radically. My destructive addictions were replaced by a hunger and thirst for his word and fellowship with other Christians. I was able to recognize sin clearly uh, rather than make excuses, uh, which was my previous habit. About a month after entrusting my life to Jesus, God convinced me that his promises are a reality. I became aware of what folly it is, given what God is doing today to maintain that the miracles reported in the New Testament never took place. Suddenly, she says, it was clear to me that my teaching was a case of the blind leading the blind. I repented for the way I had misled students. By God's grace, she says, I experienced Jesus as the one whose name is above all names. I was permitted to realize that Jesus is God's son, born of a virgin. He is the Messiah and the Son of Man. Such titles were not merely conferred on him as a result of human deliberation. I recognized, first mentally, but then in a vital experiential way, that the Holy Scripture is inspired. I have clear knowledge that my former perverse teaching was sin. At the same time, I am happy and thankful that this sin is forgiven because Jesus bore it on the cross. Then she said, I regard everything that I taught and wrote before I entrusted my life to Jesus as refuse. I wish, you, I wish to use this opportunity to mention that I have pitched my two books 
along with my contributions to journals, anthologies, etc., in the trash. And I ask you sincerely to do the same thing with any of them that you have on your bookshelf. Now, if I may summarize, Etta Littman said, I had gotten it all wrong. And at the end of Luke 23, we see some who had gotten it all wrong. The centurion declares, truly, this man was innocent. And Mark adds to that testimony, him saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And then we read also of those who went home beating their breasts as a sign of mourning. Apparently, they had also come to a different conclusion about Jesus. And the question I put before you this this afternoon is, what do you see at the cross? What do you see when you look at Jesus? There's a big emphasis in this text on seeing. Verse 47, the centurion saw. Uh, Verse 48, uh, the crowd assembled. And Luke says that they saw what had taken place. The women who followed were watching these things. Last Sunday, we looked at some who looked at Jesus on the cross, and they mocked him, the the rulers, the soldiers, one of the thieves on the cross. But there was one thief who saw Jesus differently eventually, didn't he? The believing thief on the cross. And I said that Jesus promised to save him immediately, eternally, personally, graciously, and assuredly. Now, to just review where we're at in the storyline, after a mockery of trial, of a trial, Jesus is led outside of Jerusalem, the main city of one of the least significant provinces in the vast Roman Empire at that time. At about nine in the morning, they crucified him. You can see that in Mark 15. That was what Mark calls the third hour at 9 a.m. And then we read around noon, the sun failed to shine, the sixth hour. And then around 3 p.m., Verse uh, 23, verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 44, about the sixth hour, or around 3 p.m., he breathed his laugh, the, the ninth hour. So all of this takes place in a six-hour period or so. The mission of 30 years or so is accomplished in these last six hours. Jesus had taken a path that many criminals had taken before him, but he was so brutally tortured from the flogging that he couldn't even carry his cross. This very stout carpenter couldn't carry this crossbeam because of what he endured. And Luke recorded for us that a North African man, Simon of Cyrene, carried the cross for Jesus. Jesus, on the way to the cross, gives a word of prophecy to the women of Jerusalem, speaking about the events that will unfold about 40 years after his death. And then as Jesus is on the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then he promises this one thief on the cross that he will be with him today in paradise. Now in the text before us today, we see that Jesus dies in peaceful trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, there were many crucifixions during this day, and Jesus most likely observed a crucifixion. The Romans got this idea from the Phoenicians during the Punic Wars, And they had become experts at the horrific business of crucifixion. Cicero called it the most cruel and most terrible punishment. And the Romans were not permitted to even speak of it to their children. But why is Jesus' death on the cross so significant? Many others were crucified. Well, for one, it's because of who he was. This is the incarnate son of God hanging on a cross. 
This is the Messiah on the cross. This is the king on the cross. All of the prophecies are being fulfilled in this moment. And it is significant, as we mentioned last Sunday, because of what it achieved, that Christ died in order to bring us to God. He died in order to give us his righteousness. He died to triumph over the devil. He triumphed to reconcile the world to himself. It was significant because of Jesus' will to endure it. He could have called down the angels. They were mocking him on the cross saying, save yourself. But Jesus said previously in John 10, I, you do not take my life, I lay it down. And this death points us forward to the day in which every believer from every people, tribe, language, and nation shall declare worthy is the Lamb. One day we will see what this event achieved in all of its glory as we worship together in heaven. So let's look at these two sections briefly this afternoon. First of all, the death of Jesus and then the burial of Jesus. Four observations regarding the death of Jesus that stand out. First of all is the darkness. We're told that it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness all over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. So around noon, something cosmic happens. Darkness covers the whole land for about three hours. This could not have been an ordinary eclipse since it lasted for three hours. Further Passover was, uh, coincides with a full moon. This was a sovereign act of God. Like this would have been very unsettling to be outside at noon when the sun is, is shining and all of a sudden for three hours it's a blackout. I don't know if you've ever been in the middle of a terrible storm. It can be very unsettling when it's in the middle of the day and it's just dark outside. Uh, I went through, uh, endured Hurricane Katrina, and after Katrina uh, in New Orleans, the, the, it was dark at night, and it's very unsettling to be in New Orleans, period, but uh, New Orleans in pitch black dark is, is quite unsettling, and you've you got to imagine people who are at the store or at the shop or wherever they were at noon uh, experience this darkness over the land, and as Luke says, the sun's light failed. The poet said, God's sun is dead, no marvel then, the sun doth hide its head. Now, this was a miracle, but it also carried symbolic meaning. What does this darkness signify? At least three things. First of all, it symbolizes evil. Jesus has spoken of this hour as Satan's hour. It's an hour of darkness. And this was the most evil of all crimes committed to crucify a perfectly innocent man. It also symbolizes sorrow. It's as if the sky begins to weep at the death of Jesus. Some refer to this as the reversal of creation, a deliberate undoing of the normal order of things, as if creation is sympathizing with Jesus in his suffering. But it also symbolizes judgment. There's an interesting text in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, where we read, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And in that text in Amos, it's written in the context of a judgment passage against Israel. And this is what's happening. Jesus is taking our place. He's taking our judgment. He's bearing the guilt of sin. He's taking our curse. And the dark sky showed that he was suffering a very unique death, suffering God's judgment against sin. Which is why the hymn writer put it well. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. You see, my friends, because Jesus took the darkness, 
because he took the judgment, by faith in him, we will never face such an experience. We don't have to face the judgment. And because of Jesus, we can endure the darkness of our days and the dark days that come to us in this fallen world. There's darkness, but there's another observation I want you to see, and that is the curtain. We see here that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Another real miracle that carries symbolic meaning. This was a very thick, dark, or thick and long curtain, and we, we don't know which part of the curtain or which, which part of the temple this curtain was in, probably the one that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Matthew and Mark add that it was torn in two from top to bottom. So you would need a 25-foot ladder to hack away at this curtain. But no one would even try that because it was in the holy place. This was something only God could do. And he tears it from top to bottom. And the tearing of this curtain draws attention to the effect of Jesus' death. What did his death achieve? And it symbolizes both termination and inauguration. Termination in that the old covenant and the Levitical priesthood has come to an end. The temple sacrifices have come to an end. Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice. As Hebrews writes it, uh, or as Hebrew writer says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Termination. But there's inauguration. It shows that the new covenant is here. Believers now have access to God through Jesus. His death has made a way for all believers to enjoy God's presence. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience God's presence. It would be very crowded if that were the case, trying to get in. No, we can experience his presence right here where we live because Jesus has made a way for us. He's inaugurated this new covenant, which is why, again, the writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. So these are two remarkable signs that happened at Skull Hill, the place of the skull. There was the darkness over the earth, and there was the tearing of the veil. And now we read of the moment of Jesus' death in verse 46. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. This is such a tender word. It's only recorded in Luke, <coughs> where Jesus is entrusting himself to his Father. I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments as a kid where you went to sleep, maybe it was in the car or something like that, and you know, knew that your dad, because he was a good dad, was going to pick you up and would just carry you to bed. You're not worried about what's going to happen. You're just going to go to sleep, and you know they're going to take care of you. Uh, I remember uh, one of my favorite pictures we have from our adoption journey is when we brought Joshua home from Ethiopia was this little guy just tanked. He was five years old. It was a long trip, and uh, I have a picture just carrying him through the airport. And he's, he's just out. Um, he was quite different than our Ukrainians that we brought home after a 27-hour trip. They were not ready to sleep. Um, I was paying them a dollar every hour to be quiet. It's not very good parenting, but it, it worked. And um, I mean, they spoke no English, and, uh, but they spoke George Washington. And so I was just every hour handing them you know, a, a dollar bill. But, but, but Joshua was just out. And you just have these moments in which you know that your your father is going to see to it that you're going to be all right. 
And Jesus, in this moment, entrusts himself to the Father. And he's citing here Psalm 31, verse 5, which David cites, <coughs> excuse me, which is a, a pointer to Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king. And this was a psalm that the Jews read at night for a good night's sleep. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus adds this little introductory word, Father, that doesn't appear in Psalm 31. He's expressing full confidence in the Father. He knows that there's light on the other side of the cross. And so he entrusts himself. And we will have moments in our lives where we wonder if we have been forsaken. But Jesus shows us here how to trust the Father in the dark. Even when we cannot see the light, he is our Father and we can trust him. Now Matthew and Mark add the lament from Psalm 22, why have you forsaken me? And John adds the triumphant claim, it is finished. But Luke here records Jesus breathing his last in trust and in victory. He has won by entrusting himself to the Father every step of the way to the cross and then in his final breath on the cross. He dies with complete assurance. And my friends, if you're in Christ, you too can die with complete assurance. It is said that the reformer John Huss died with these words on his lips. Biographers tell us that the reformer Martin Luther cited a number of passages right before his death. John 3, 16, Psalm 68, 20, and then he recited Psalm 31, 5 over and over again. We can die with assurance if this is our Father and this is our Christ. Now notice these responses. There's a centurion here who sees Jesus and he praises God and he says, truly this man is innocent. This is yet another moment in Luke's narrative where the innocence of Jesus is declared. And it's not clear exactly what led the centurion to make this confession. Was it Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them? Was it the signs, the darkness and the uh, torn curtain? Was it Jesus' final words? We don't know. Probably a combination of all of them. But it was the right conclusion. And as I mentioned, Mark pointed out that there was more said. He said, truly, this is the Son of God. This is not a contradiction in the two Gospels. These are complementary to each other. For Jesus to be the Son of God, he had to be innocent. He is the innocent Son of God. And the centurion, think about that, a Roman centurion becomes a pattern of faith and signals that waves of Gentiles will pour into the kingdom of God. Uh, Morris said in Psalm 22, related to this, all the families of the nations will bow down before him. God will open up more Gentiles' eyes in order to see him. So again, I ask you, what do you see here at the cross? <clears throat> Some look to Jesus at the cross, and they say, game over. But the centurion looks at him and says, game changer. And that's what we say today as believers. This changes everything. And there were some in the crowd, verse 48, they also saw the spectacle. And when they saw what had taken place, they go and they beat their breasts. This, this picture of mourning. They recognize that an innocent one has been put to death. And it has led them to a different conclusion. It's not the first time we've seen in the Gospel of Luke someone beating their breast as a sign of repentance and mourning. Jesus told that famous parable, didn't he, of a tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee prays, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. 
And the poor tax collector won't even lift his head, but beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that guy went down to his house justified rather than the other. There were some who saw Jesus at the cross and were transformed. And the beating of the breasts turned into the beating of their hearts, their spiritual hearts. And here we meet the women again in verse 49. There were women who had been close to Jesus all the way through his ministry. We've looked at that. And here these ladies are watching everything. They had witnessed the mockery, the burial, uh, or the dying, the casting of lots, the, the burial, and the empty tomb. And they assume, they don't have it yet, that that's all she wrote when Jesus dies. But in just a few days, they'll see it's all just begin. Jesus Christ said that he came to seek and save the lost, and he did so by dying in our place for our sins. This is the power of the cross, the Son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. That's what I see when I see Jesus. And I hope you do as well. Now briefly, the burial of Jesus. You see in this burial story that faith and followers of Jesus come from some very unlikely quarters. First, we see a Roman centurion making a Christian confession. We see women following Jesus. They're going to herald the resurrection. And now we see this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, an insider. He's from a Jewish town. He was a member of the council. So there was a remnant of believers in among the, the Jewish leadership. And he had not consented to what had taken place with Jesus, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. In many ways, he's a model disciple. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. He's not waiting for a political leader. He was waiting for the Messiah, and he believed that he found him in Jesus. Now, Mark underscores that when he goes to Pilate, that he, had to, that he went boldly to him, that this was a courageous act on his part. You don't just go up to a Roman leader uh, in that day and, and start asking for stuff, especially a person that was so controversial like Jesus was, but he does. And he asked for permission to give Jesus a decent burial. You see that in verse 52 and, and 53. And you see that he's put into a tomb cut in stone where no one has ever been laid. This is fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 9. He's put in the grave of a, a rich person. And there is this tomb that is uh, cut in stone. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know there's a debate about the kind of the two places where Jesus could have been laid. But it doesn't really matter because he's not in either one of them. Yeah, right? right? <clears throat> now, why is the burial important uh, when it comes to Jesus? It's important for us to remember, I think, that this is an important article of faith. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for I delivered to you what was first importance, uh, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. And in the Apostles' Creed, we recite he was crucified, dead, and buried. We always put the and buried in there. The burial confirms that Jesus actually died. There's no hint of Jesus swooning as uh, Muslim theology teaches, and as some hold today. That, in other words, Jesus didn't resurrect. He was resuscitated. He, no, the burial is confirming that Jesus died. And we shouldn't doubt that in the first place, as if Romans don't know how to kill a person. They're quite good at it. And in, in John 19, his death was confirmed by the soldier's actions. So what, what, does his, 
What does the burial of Jesus really mean to us? Why is it important? Three things. First of all, it's proof of his incarnation. The death of Jesus is proof that he was truly human. One of the evidences of full humanity is death. And he died. He was buried. Secondly, his death was the payment for our atonement. We needed more than the incarnation of Jesus to be saved. We needed more than the suffering of Jesus to be saved. We needed his perfect atonement to be saved. We needed his death. We needed his blood. That's why we just sang about what can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We've been reconciled to God through the death of his son. And Hebrews says it is through death that our Savior has delivered us from the power of death. Jesus put to death death. And thirdly, his death was a prerequisite for resurrection. Because obviously for someone to rise from the dead means they actually had to have died in the first place. Jesus had to really die for others to be really raised from the dead. There's no Luke 24 without a Luke 23. And Jesus really died. He was really buried. He really rose from the dead. And we as believers don't have to worry about what will happen to us when we die. Jesus has gone to the grave ahead of us, and he will lead us out into eternal life. And that's a good Friday. It was a day of preparation, final two verses here. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body had been laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The day of preparation was Friday, so the Sabbath is drawing near. They see where the Lord has been laid to rest, and they plan to return after the Sabbath to anoint Jesus' body with spices so as to preserve it and to lessen the stench. Because they're uh, faithful Jews, they rest on the Sabbath. And that's where we leave it today. Jesus is laid to rest, but the story isn't over. Things don't remain silent for too long in Luke's gospel. Peter would later preach, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, as we come to this text, we're reminded that Sunday is coming. And Sunday came, and death has been defeated. And now we don't have to fear death as believers. We can say in our final moments of existence, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit, and we can die in peaceful trust. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Praise be to God for the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word today. I pray that our hearts today would um, have increased gratitude for the Lord Jesus, for all that he endured, for all that he accomplished on the cross. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise. We can never thank you enough for what you have done for us in reconciling us to the Father and forgiving our sins and giving us eternal life and giving us hope in life and death. We bless you now and forever. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.